You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Let's stay standing and let's bow our heads and continue worshiping through prayer. God, this morning, we just want to stop in the midst of our service and just say these simple words, God, we love you. We're so thankful, Lord, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to come and worship you today. This is not old. This is not boring. This is not mundane. This is is our joy and our privilege as God's people to gather in your house and to lift high the name of Jesus and worship and to open up your word and read and hear from you, O God. Would you forgive us, Lord, the times that we come into this place and just do our little thing to check off a box, off the religious check, check box. God, forgive us for those times. Forgive us, God, for the times where we treat our sin as if it's nothing and simply slough it off as if it doesn't even matter. It matters so much, God, that you sent your son Jesus to pay the penalty of our sin and release us from it that we might truly be men and women who adore you and live our lives for your glory. Oh God, would you stir afresh in us a love of Jesus Christ? Would you help us see even greater, Lord, the reality of who your son is? Would you speak to us this morning, Lord, through your word? We came here. We didn't come to hear a homily from a man. We didn't come here just to get a little nice little tidbit that's going to give us a nice warm, fuzzy feeling go on our way. God, we came here because we want to hear from you today. We want to know exactly what your word has for us, that we may live our lives 100% for you alone. So, God, would you help us as we open up your word? Would you help our hearts understand? And would you stir our wills to want to put into practice what we hear? We need you, God. We have no problem telling you that we are weak, needy, desperate people, and we need you so much, even this next hour, to focus and to learn all that we can learn, to be drawn closer to our Savior. That's what we want, God, to be closer to you on the the way out the door than when we came in. Please make it so, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I invite you to go ahead and take a seat. Acts chapter 4 is where we are, so you can get there. You know the routine, right? What is the first thing we do at our church? We open up the Bible, right? So Acts chapter 4, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, please stick your hand up. One of our ushers will be more than happy to uh, give you one to you that you can follow along and read along with us. Uh, Acts chapter 4, I'm just going to start by reading the Scripture, so you look it up, and when I sense you're ready, we're going to go. So, sword drill, Go. Phones don't count, Greg. That's cheating. All right, Acts 4. Is everyone there? Ready? If you're you're there, say ready. Ready. Good. Me too. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. We know that God loves the reading of his word in public and blesses it. And this is where the power is. So let's read this together. Follow along as I read. Peter and John before the council. And as they were speaking to the people, remember they were preaching, right? This, this lame man had been healed and now opportunity to spread the gospel. So as they're speaking to the people, the religious people going to the temple, uh, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. We're, we're coming to give them high fives. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about, get this, 5,000. That's awesome. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. And when Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family, and when they set them in the midst, they inquire. There's a little inquiry going on. By what power, by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, answers them this. Rulers and people and elders. Rulers of the people and elders. If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is this man healed? The one you crucified whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, quite a bit like you and I, don't you think? They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. What can you say to that? Show and tell, hey? But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For, they are, for that a notable sign has been performed through them as evidence to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. They won't even say the name Jesus, in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak to what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because all the people were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of God. You want to be a part of an unstoppable church? You, you want to have an audacious faith in Jesus Christ? Here's the truth you have to know. It's not proclaimed in too many pulpits today, but it's the truth from the word of God. It's simply this. It's not going to be easy. It's just not going to be easy. In fact, inevitably, opposition is going to happen. You decide you're going to follow Jesus with all of your heart. Opposition is going to happen in the church and in your life. So many believers today, so many believers today have this wrong view of what it means to be in the center of God's will and what it means to be in the middle of God's blessing. And they they think that if you're in the center of God's will, the middle middle of God's blessing, it's just simply going to be easy. If I set my compass towards Jesus and I put my boat in the water and set sail towards the thing God wants me to set sail for, man, the water's going to be smooth and the wind's always going to be blowing at my back. How many of you guys can say this? It's ridiculous. You know that, right? You come into the mindset of the Christian faith of that mindset, you're going to be discouraged and you're going to be doubt and you're going to doubt and you're going to be disappointed pretty quickly. Because the truth of the matter is this, we learn this from the scriptures. The truth of the matter is this, if we truly decide to set our compass towards Jesus, you know what's going to happen? The enemy is going to hate that 100%. He's going to do whatever he can to rock our boats and capsize us that we never reach one of God's desired ports for our lives. Opposition and persecution have been a part of the Christian experience from the beginning. What's this, day three of the early church? It's true that Christians are on the winning team, but here's the thing. Christians are on the winning team, and they're on the team that everyone likes to hate. Isn't the way it often goes. The winning team, everyone likes to hate. We're on the winning team, but it's the one that everyone likes to hate. And opposition, instead of being a sign that you're off course, is actually probably a clear marker that you're heading in the right direction for the Lord. This is what we learn in the early church. This is what we learn throughout scriptures and the history of the church. And so we want to unpack this for you, not not just to warn you of this, but also this passage shows us how we can healthily and effectively navigate through the storms of opposition that are going to come our way if we're living wholeheartedly for Jesus. And so point number one I want you to notice here from this text, verses one to seven, is this. When I go after Jesus wholeheartedly by faith, I will draw the ire of Jesus opposed. In other words, I'm going to take people off. This whole theology of like everyone's going to love you and it's just not true. If I'm going to follow hard after Jesus, I am going to draw the ire of opposers. And this is what's happening in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John. You remember Acts chapter 3 last week, right? We're so inspired to faith that God can do anything in our lives. He wants to do His goal is for us to use as a springboard to the gospel, the real healing of the soul that God wants to do. So Peter and John are preaching this message. They're boldly proclaiming the saving grace of Jesus, not just physically, but more important, spiritually in the soul and two things are a result we see this in the first seven verses two things happen as God's spirit empowers God's people and God's people follow him on mission and they boldly proclaim Jesus here's two things that are going to happen in the early church and in our lives number one is this there's going to be more salvations see that here there's going to be more salvations how many people came to know Jesus Christ in this second sermon about 5,000 men What's that mean? Much more than 5,000 people came to know Jesus Christ. Isn't this phenomenal? Two events, two sermons, and the church has now grown to probably around 10,000 people. 
God moves. You don't think that God ordains his ways on purpose? God moves. Over 10,000 people now professing Jesus Christ, more salvation. You think God is down on, on big churches and he only wants us to be, I've heard it so often, he, God only loves the little churches. Really, this is the church of over 10, the mega church is born right here. It actually is biblical. And God can use it. First thing that happens is there's more salvations. As we follow God's plan, there's gonna be more salvations. Natural result is God is gonna save souls as we follow him as he desires. Number two is this, there's gonna be real opposition. As good as this gets, all of a sudden, it gets uncomfortable and it gets hard for the believers. This is the first record of opposition in the early church but it's the beginning of a history marked by oppression and persecution of believers. In the book of Acts, we're gonna see a cyclical pattern here. It's, it's gonna happen throughout the whole book of Acts. I said this in the first sermon, I'm gonna remind you again, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes. When the Holy Spirit comes, God's people are empowered to preach. When God's people preach, God things happen. Supernatural happens, salvations happen. But then the third thing that always happens is there's going to be opposition. The enemy hates it when God moves. And so he stirs up people around to try and discourage and dissuade the people of God. And the fourth thing in this cycle that happens is ultimately God comes and he shows up and he rescues and he moves the advancement of the church and the gospel forward. And so we see this playing out for the first time here in Acts chapter four. And the Sadducees are the ones that really rise up this time. This time, it's the Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? They're a group of quote-unquote religious people, a sect of Judaism that really wanted nothing to do with Jesus and everything to do with their own little system that they had designed for themselves. And so these, these Sadducees, they're, they're, they're greatly annoyed. What does it mean to be greatly annoyed? Have you ever been greatly annoyed before? You're exasperated. They're, they're, like, they're like, these this Jesus guy, I thought we killed them. These Christians, they won't stop talking about Jesus. And they're exasperated. They're, they're going to wreck our little thing going on here. Sadducees were people that, that were defined by this. They denied a bodily resurrection, the existence of angels and spirits. They wanted nothing to do with resurrection or an afterlife. Their loyalty was to the Roman government. They had made their beds with the politicians and, and hoping to get ahead. They, they, they wanted to be kind of in a religious thing, but in the world at the same time, they had a desire to maintain status quo. They wanted peace and comfort at all costs. In fact, it was a, a wealthy class. It was the kind of the aristocrats, this little club of religious club med guys going on. And they adhered only to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, they adhered only to the Pentateuch, so they had a faith based on, basically, what you can and can't do. It made it somewhat easy because they could skip all the real hard issues that Jesus was talking about. And they could just put on this outer show, and it's like, I'm, I'm more spiritual than the next person. Look, look how good I am. Look at my smile. Look at my Bible. Look at all the verses I've memorized. And so Jesus was messing with them, and the people of God were messing with these people. And, and, and Jesus was, was, was like their boat, their boat that was headed for all these places they wanted to go. Was, Jesus was rocking the boat. And they, they realized, we're going we're gonna to tip here. So what they did is they, in their desire for comfort over conviction, for what they wanted to believe over truth, they rounded up Peter and John, and they had this little religious kangaroo court for them where they put them on trial with the goal of like shutting them up so they wouldn't talk about Jesus Christ. You think of it, this first seven verses are quite a shock, aren't they? But everything was so good. God was moving, like, like nothing's gonna, you know, the, you can picture the early church driving down the QEW on the way to like you know, 100 kilometers an hour, like nothing's gonna stop us, right? I can hear the tune in my head if it didn't come out that way, that's just the way it goes. Nothing's gonna stop us now if you're older than whatever, you remember that song. But, but then just like traveling to Toronto on the QEW, it just all of a sudden stops dead, right? And then you're like, everything's going good, I'm gonna make... That's what's happening to the church. When God's move, when God moves, Satan opposes, and his goal is to bring your faith and, and your church to a standstill for the things of God. And quite honestly, as we read these first four verses, these first seven verses, like it, we shouldn't expect anything different in our lives. We, we shouldn't expect anything different than what's happening to the early church that, to happen to us. Just mentioning the name Jesus, these people aren't out there being belligerent. They're not out there trying to, to pound down doors. They're just simply sharing the gospel. And, and quite honestly, people are going to be offended when we share the gospel, just like they were at the early church. 
Jesus has never been and will never be a popular message. Jesus is offensive and he is exclusive and he will mess with other people's belief systems. So if we're gonna stand as a church, if you're gonna stand as an individual on the reality of the gospel, just be prepared for this. You're gonna tick people off without even trying to. Think about it. What was the, so far, the Sadducees, what were they so frustrated about? Their, Jesus messed up their whole religious system. Think about the world around us. Everybody has a theological system. Everyone has a religious system, whether they claim to or not. And the world around us, the, the religious system of the world around us is this, it's humanism. You know what humanism is? It's an elevation of man over everything else. I am the highest value. I am the highest wisdom. I am the highest whatever. And so we we start preaching Jesus and all of a sudden like, that messes with the world system, right? And and people are going to get ticked off. If I'm at the top, then I do what I want, how I want, when I want. It's my ideas that matter, not yours. And and I can live onto myself. And Jesus changes all upside down, doesn't it? We can't live on to ourselves. We, we have an authority over us. We have someone we're gonna give account to. There's already been a way predestined for us that we are supposed to walk in. Start mentioning Jesus without even trying to, people are gonna get upset. Think of even the religious people that get upset with the message of Jesus. Even people in the name of Jesus skip the heart of Jesus in today's world and we stick to the gospel, guess what? People are gonna get upset. People who want to keep to the external rules of the Bible as a standard of salvation, just like the Sadducees. Focus on the exterior behaviors instead of the interior heart. And, and religious people, church people, even get upset when we stick to the truth of the gospel. And honestly, if we're going to be sold out for Jesus, if we're going to really make a difference for Jesus, we have to expect that maybe not thrown in jail yet, yet, Maybe not taken to court yet, but we are. People will put, try and put bars around our lives to label us and to restrict us. We will be before the court of public opinion before you know it to question you in what you think you, you're believing in, in your, all this talk about God and his word and his son. But we shouldn't be surprised by this. You know why? Because Jesus told us this was going to happen. This isn't just for the early church. It wasn't just for our lives. Jesus already walked this path. As our perfect example, he already walked this path to show us what it's going to be like. Look at John 15, verse 20 with me. This is the words of Jesus himself. I know this isn't popular. I know in our comfy, cozy North American Christianity, this is supposed to be a feel-good message. It's supposed to be like, you know, just tell me how great I am, Pastor, how much God loves me. God does love you, but this is a reality of truly following him. John 15, verse 20, remember the word, the word I said to you, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, did they persecute Jesus? They will also persecute you. Verse 25 tells us that they persecuted Jesus without cause. They hated me, Jesus says. They hated me without any cause. Why would we expect any different? Luke 6, 22 to 23, but yet blessed are you when people hate you and when people exclude you and people revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So actually it's a, it's a blessing to be lumped into the persecution of Jesus, the opposition of the enemy. Why? Why? Because it shows that we're actually identified with Jesus Christ in every way, the way that he desires for us. And so it's in verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Do you remember the last time you... Did the Mary Poppins heel click for opposition and oppression? I can't. But yet that's what it says. Why? Because there is something greater. It's our reward in heaven. As Christ followers, we no longer live for the rewards of earth. We live for the rewards of heaven. I don't like this truth as much as you do, but it's simply still truth. The reality is if we're going to live for Jesus, if our church is going to go hard for Jesus, there's just, just going to be opposition. Maybe not jail, maybe not court yet. I believe that day will be coming even in North America. But here's four ways that you see opposition. You think, oh, this doesn't apply to me. This is, this is for, this, here's four ways we see opposition today. Uh, Christians from the very first part of history were marginalized. We see it today in our culture all around us. We're marginalization of, uh, of people who say they believe in Jesus Christ. What's marginalization means? It means we're treated as second-rate citizens and relegated to the least popular places at school. Relegated to the lowest place at work sometimes. Left off community committees. Why? Because there's this mentality that Christians are these annoying, narrow-minded, judgmental bigots who should simply keep quiet. You ever heard some of those labels before? Marginalization. 
Negative press. Negative press. Some ways we're opposed today. People who tend to amplify our faults and overanalyze our positives so that we, they can assign some sort of bad motive or false motive to you so that, that they could hurt you and, and, and discredit Jesus. This is all, people are always looking to put a negative press line over believers. You notice that? No matter how good it is, there's something negative that comes out of it. And you just have to expect that. You have to expect that in your neighborhoods. You have to expect that at your school. You have to expect that in your workplaces. Not to be discouraged by it, just to expect it. It's part of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We're the brunt of jokes, let's be honest. Everything goes good until you mention you're a follower of Jesus Christ, right? And all of a sudden the jokes start and the snickers happen. I've shared with you guys a lot. I seem to get along with a lot of people and the inevitable question comes to me. It's like, so what do you do for a living? Conversation stopper right here. And the pastor. Ew. Then the next time you see them, there's the, the, the snickers sometimes, and, and, or they don't do it in front of your face. And here after, well, yeah, they, they think you're a joke. They do. Well, they're super nice to my face. It's inevitable. I, shared you, I think I shared with you guys just this summer. I had the opportunity to share Christ with my son's soccer coach. And, of course, very next practice, guess what his new na- nickname is? Preacher boy. On the way home, I was like, sorry, man. I don't say about that. Just, it's part of what we are. It's part of what we do. And it's okay. It's okay. It means we're identified with Jesus. It's hard. We're the brunt of jokes. We even get harsh treatment. Some people lose their jobs, even today, over their faith. They can never say that because you know, it hits the papers, but over your faith, you might lose your job. You might lose some friendships. Even family might decide to not invite you for Christmas because they know you want to talk about Jesus somehow. And it says right here that people are going to exclude us, they're going to revile us, they're going to spurn our name as evil. I don't know when we became, as believers, so soft. But this is just part of being a Christian for all of history. In fact, E.W. Tozer says this, to be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men. To truly be right with God means that you're Probably not going to be the most popular among men. Now, just so you don't hear what I'm trying to say, we're not, we're not saying here that this, this passage, if you look at it, they're, they're not going out there being belligerent and obnoxious about their faith and saying all kinds of uh, crazy statements that are stirring up controversy, you know, like the Westboro Baptist people who are just ignorantly belligerent for the Lord, quote unquote, right? It's not saying that. So I'm encouraged that if you're being persecuted because you're being obnoxious, that's probably not persecution. That's probably someone that needs to speak some truth into your life. It's not biblical or godly, but, it, but, but honestly, if you just start talking about Jesus, this stuff is simply going to happen. I think back to my own life, even before I became a pastor, this is just the reality of being a Christian. I remember I shared with you, I became saved at Bible college, and uh, my first or second summer, I can't remember which, it all becomes fuzzy when it becomes 20 years beyond. It just becomes fuzzy back there. I had a landscaping job, and I went to work the first day, and within the first four hours, the first break and lunch, I realized that my, my crew chief was a skinhead. And I remember even then, new in the faith, I was so excited. I had, uh, God had found me, and, and I didn't know what God was doing in my life, but I was excited to be saved. I knew that. And, and already in the back of the, you know, the big king cab truck, I remember thinking, like, okay, this is going to be a bad summer if I admit I'm a Bible college student and I love Jesus. So, like, that, that human tendency to fear. Anyone got that? No, no, just me, apparently. Anyone got that? Oh, okay, good, 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 good. Leave me hanging all the time, you guys do. So I'm thinking, like, I'm not going to say anything all summer long. I'm just not going to say it. But as you know, I can talk pretty well. And, uh, <laughs> but in the, the first week, it just there's no secret. This is, this is who I am. This is what I do. And I wasn't belligerent about it. I wasn't trying to push my faith on anybody. Just this is, this is simply what I believe is true. And what, you know what that did for me? That made me? They gave me the summer from hell. All of a sudden, I got all the worst jobs. If they were dirty, if, they were, if there was maggots involved, if like, like, that was me. If there was a hedge that needed to be trimmed with a beehive in it, that would be me up on the 10-foot ladder with this guy shaking the ladder. I'm not exaggerating. I felt like dropping the hedge trimmer. I did not. <laughs> I'm being so discouraged. Like, what's going on? Why is this happening? Like, if we're going to identify with Jesus, we just have to, it's just normal for Christians. And it's not, even, it's not even the outside world that is quick to oppose us. Sadducees were Christians. They were the religious. 
Do you realize that even in our church over the last five years that most of the opposition to what is happening within here is not coming from the outside unbelieving world? You know where it's coming from? Other churches. When we first launched this church, even before in our core group phase, we had a a, a Christian come to our core group meetings to ask silly questions to try and stir the pot. And then after we launched, he'd go to his church only to come to our church after just to snoop around and try and find out ways to criticize us and put us down. Remember that time thinking, what's going on? Why? Actually might mean that we're identified with Jesus. It might be a good thing, amen? So it's playing out here in Acts chapter 4. In fact, it says in Luke 6, 26, read this. It says this, write this verse down. It says that, that woe to you, in other words, like curses to you and everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. The gospel's offensive. Jesus is offensive. There is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a right way, there is a wrong way, there's moral absolutes in this world, and that is offensive to people. And so we're not preaching that everyone's gonna love us. We speak that, and people aren't gonna love us, but that probably means that Jesus does, and we're on his side. Why do I tell you all this? Partly because it's in scripture, partly because I don't wanna set you guys up for failure. I don't want to pat you on the back and tell you it's going to be all awesome and have a great life. It's going to be fantastic from here on out. No problems. That's going to set you up for failure. This is going to prepare you for what's really ahead to get on your knees and seek the Lord and say, God, help me. I need strength for this. I can't do this. Can you do this? No. This is to warn you, to encourage you to seek Jesus and to stick to Jesus and knowing when you stick to Jesus, others are going to repel you. But in opposition, God will give you all the strength you need to be faithful. In opposition, God calls me to be faithful. Here's point number two. What do you do? What do you do in this? We learn from Peter and John what to do when things go backwards for our faith and opposition and persecution come. It comes. When I go after Jesus wholeheartedly, not only do I know that I'm going to tick people off, but I know the help of the Spirit to remain faithful to the gospel. God will give you all that you need to remain faithful to the gospel. Look at verse 8. How do I respond? How do I respond when these things happen in my life? How does Peter and John respond when this happened in their lives? Here's what Peter says. Then Peter, what's the next words? He was filled with a... Yeah, hold on to that thought. We're coming back to it because that's a key to this whole thing. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, really what he's saying is really we're being examined today because we helped a crippled... Even, Even according to their law, this is good, Right? Then what's up? Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that this is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Look at what he says, whom you crucified. He never misses a chance to say that, right? Whom you crucified. Whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to opposite? What did Peter do? He was faithful to the gospel. He's like, what? Interesting how it worked, hey? For Peter, he... Holy Spirit comes, he gets to preach to all the people around, unbelievers alike. Then, then the healing of the crippled man, he gets to preach to the religious people. And, and, then, and then because of that, they call him in to preach to the leaders of the religious people. See where it's going? And what does Peter do? He takes every opportunity to proclaim Jesus Christ. He doesn't shrink back from it. He doesn't cower away. He doesn't run away. He just says, you want to know the answer? You want to know the answer? I was hoping you'd ask that question. I can't wait to tell you the answer. Here it is. Jesus Christ is the answer. Jesus Christ doesn't mince words with these people either. Can you imagine how intimidated he might be in the religious courts? Maybe tempted to like tiptoe around the real gospel. He might be tempted to soft paddle. Like he says, like, Jesus is responsible for this. The, guys that, the, the guy that you killed. That's bold, don't you think? It's the same thing he said in Acts chapter 2. Remember in his sermon after the Holy Spirit came when he said, like, this Jesus whom you crucified, this is it. Acts chapter 3 says the same thing. This Jesus whom you crucified. Third verse, same as the first. People might not want to hear it, but that's the truth of the gospel. We can't get, if we really believe it, we can't get around it. What's the gospel? The gospel is simply this. You put Jesus on the cross, not the Sadducees. Not the Jewish people of the day. You put Jesus on the cross. I put Jesus on the cross by my sin. And because we put him on the cross, because of our sin, we're separated from God. Amanda, we need a savior. That's the gospel, as simple as it is. That's the gospel. Nothing else, nothing more. That's the gospel. 
Peter remains faithful to the gospel, even in opposition. How? How? Because if you're like me, you're looking at this going like, I want that. Don't you want that? I want that boldness. I want that courage. I want to be like Peter and John. How? I believe the key is in verse 8. He was filled with the Spirit. What's that mean? It means that he was walking in step with the Holy Spirit of God. It means that every day he was, he was confessing his sin before the Lord. He was seeking to walk in right relationship with God. He's being fed the word of God and communing with God through prayer. And the Holy Spirit was alive and real in Peter. And he knew when the Holy Spirit was leading. He knew when the Holy Spirit was telling him to open his mouth. He knew when the Holy Spirit was telling him to close his mouth. And the courage and the faith, it all came from one place. Not his own flesh, but from the Holy Spirit as he walked in vital relationship with God. That's how. That's not rocket science. It's not. It's truth. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you walking every day filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you walking every day striving to be in tune with the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Holy Spirit? Or is it just a Sunday thing? It's a daily abiding. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and, and, and it's not in the text, but here's what I believe is where the the rest of his courage came from. He just believed it. He just simply believed it. You want the answer? It's Jesus. Look what he says in verse 11. This Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, this Jesus, he's the cornerstone of your life. This, these religious people were building a foundation on something other than Jesus. He's saying that's going to crumble, and he really believed that that would crumble, so if you believe it's going to crumble, why would you not be compelled to share it's going to crumble? Jesus is the only foundation we could build, anyone can build on in their lives if they want to have any hope of a right relationship with God. It's only built on Jesus Christ. It's not the church they go to. It's not the things they do or don't do. It's not, it's not their parents' faith. It's, it's, it's none of those things that we sometimes want. To, it's not our religious traditions that we hold to. It is Jesus Christ. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is the only foundation, how can we not share it even when it's hard and difficult and people might make fun of us a little bit? He really believed it. Look at verse 12. You've got to circle this 12, verse in your Bible if you haven't yet. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by, man, by which men must be saved. You can almost feel the burden oozing out of Peter. The burden ooze out of you as you talk to people about your faith. Christian culture today, it seems like everything goes like you ever seen those little coexist stickers? This idea that it doesn't matter what faith, no matter what faith you have, it all goes to God? It's just not true. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If we really believe this, it doesn't matter what people are saying, how they're going to try and nail us down or pin us down. Like we, we can't help but share it. If Jesus is truly the only foundation for our lives, if Jesus truly is the foundation that's going to keep us strong in the storms of life and not the sand, then we're going to share it. If Jesus truly is the power to a victorious life here on this earth, we're going to share it and not shrink away. If we really believe that Jesus is the only access to the throne room of God through prayers, and we're going to preach it and we're going to say it no matter what comes our way. If we really believe that, that every person is going to stand one day before God and the only hope they have to entrance into heaven is through the name of Jesus, we will share it like Peter. But if we really don't believe that, we're probably going to run the other way when opposition comes. It's amazing to me as I think of this and look at our history, I, it seems to me that we're becoming, instead of stronger in the faith as Jesus gets closer to coming back, we're getting softer. It seems the early church, you read people of the early church and they seem so strong and so stable and now it seems like we're, we're so soft and we're so easily dissuaded and so any little thing comes and we run. It should be the other way around, brothers and sisters. It should be the other way around. We're closer now than ever before to Christ's return. We've seen so much in human history. Holy Spirit gave Peter everything he needed and he will to those who want him to here on earth too. Right now. 
as I look at our culture, as I look at our Christianity today, I unfortunately see more people not standing like Peter than those that do stand like Peter. Even a little bit of hardship, it seems to just crumble people. Why? How do you respond to opposition? Are you like Peter? Are you one that's quick to run away? Three ways I think we respond to opposition today in our church that I think God wants to really speak to us about today and and maybe change some things in our hearts. How do I respond to opposition? Uh, First thing I think I've seen people do all the time is this, they... We retreat and hide when any little hard thing comes. It's, I've attached animals to these to help you kind of distinguish which animal am I when it comes to opposition. Am I a turtle? You know, turtles, hard shells, stressful, what do they retreat? And I see so many Christians retreating and turtling in their faith. And, and first, first little snicker that comes, first little mock that comes, what do you do? You, you get your little hard shell, you pull your faith, and you pull it back in there. And oh, you're still a Christian. You still hang out with Christian people, and you still do. But outside, man, it's a turtle. It's a hard shell of like, no one's going to crack me for what I really believe because I'm just scared of what's going to happen. So many Christians turtle today. It's not what God designed us to do. It's not God, what God wants. It's not the audacious faith God has given us through the power of his Holy Spirit. Others become like chameleons. You know what a chameleon is? That little lizardly-like thing that blends in so well with the, the culture. I'm trying to stand out, but I want to blend in. And, and I, mean, I still talk about my faith a little bit. It's seen a little bit, because you can always see a chameleon still. They think they're hiding. They're not. But I'm definitely not putting myself out there. And It's really deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're standing for Jesus, but in reality, we're just blending in, and there's no visible sign of Christ's life in us apart from compared to anyone else in the world. We do some good moral things, but others become chameleons. And there's another bunch that I'm encouraged there's a lot in here even today that are lions, that are lions, strong and confident. You ever think of this? A lion can't go unnoticed in the jungle. If you're in the jungle, it doesn't matter what animal you are. When a lion walks through the jungle, even if it's not roaring loudly and, and viciously, a lion walks through the jungle, you know what they're doing? They just stop because they know it's the king's coming, right? Not that you're the king, but the, the king of Judah lives within you. The lion of Judah surrounds you. We can walk like lions into the culture that, that without any fear, knowing that God will look after us. Peter was a lion. John was a lion. God has his story in the Bible today to help us be inspired to be lions like Peter and John and the apostles. There's now a time in our history we need people to stand up like lions. It's now. Doesn't matter how hard it's going to get. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to hide. I'm going to draw near to the Lord and allow him to empower me to his boldness that others might see the glory and know the glory of Jesus. I study this, I love what John MacArthur says about this passage, about the boldness of Peter and the boldness of John. He says this, ironically, the early believers had to be commanded to be quiet while many modern ones have to be commanded to speak. This was an important crossroads in the history of the church. Had the apostles acquiesced to the Sanhedrin's demand, all subsequent church history would have been radically different. Everything hinged on the willingness of the believers to share Jesus Christ and stand up as bold lions. You're like, glad they did. Amen? So maybe the church doesn't hinge on us, but it sort of does. If we don't stand up, then who's going to? Think of the other people in your sphere of life and influence. If, if, If you don't stand up, and speak Jesus into their lives, then, then what's, what's the rest of this life and the next going to look like for them? History hinges on God's people standing up like lions. Not turtling, not becoming chameleons, but standing out and standing up like lions. It's a call, it's a challenge, it is. Where are you at today? How are you going to choose to live your life audaciously by faith in Jesus Christ? or fearfully, as the way most seem to go these days. God's call is that you stand up by faith and are bold as a lion for Jesus, knowing this, point number three, that you can completely trust that God is gonna work things out for you. Knowing this, you can completely trust that God is gonna work things out for you. 
To summarize the next verses, verses 13 to 22, let me read verse 13 first because this is a powerful verse. Again, if you haven't circled this one, circle this one too. There's a lot of verses to circle in this passage, isn't there? Circle this one too, but, but know this, that when I go after Jesus wholeheartedly, I can completely trust that God is going to work things out. Peter and John, first verse 13, so Peter gives this little dissertation. It's really not rocket science as much as, hey, here's the gospel. You need Jesus. You, you, you killed him. You, you're building your foundation on something that's not godly. It's going to crumble. You need Jesus. And verse 13, well, now when the Sadducees, the leaders of the church, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were this, uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They're like, What? So don't go thinking this is for somebody else or the spiritually leader for the pastor or the elders. They realize that these were common, ordinary men and women in the early church, just regular people like you and I that were like, wow, that's profound. How's that profound? Because they had been with Jesus and they recognized they'd been with Jesus. It's a difference to all this stuff. If you're gonna be powerful for the Lord, it starts with being with Jesus and, and loving Jesus and making Jesus your priority and, and seeking after Jesus with all your heart, making your life available to him. Then, of course, verses 14 to 22 just kind of unpacks how this goes. They're like, wow, I, what do we say to this? These guys are just regular guys. How can we argue with what they're saying? Here's sermon, of sermon illustrations. This is the best one ever. It's an over 40-year-old guy who used to be crippled yesterday, and now he's healed. Sermon illustration exhibit A. Like, what do we say? Oh, what do you say to this? There's nothing to say. Like, like, clearly, clearly there's something to this. These, these guys couldn't have done it. So, so what do we do? Like, do we, do we, do we beat them? Well, if we, if we beat them, it's going to look bad for us. They actually did a good thing. They helped the poor. It's part of our, part of our desire too, right? If we kill them, that's going to be even worse. Then we're like, so what they did is they came in, they threatened them. They said, okay, how they threatened them, I don't know. Probably, it's probably a little bit, we're going to beat you. I don't know what they said. We're going to kill you. We're going to say bad things. I don't know what they said. So, We'll threaten them, and then maybe they'll go and be so scared they won't talk about Jesus. But look, look, at the, look at the response of Peter and John. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them. Basically, stop talking about Jesus. Don't, just don't do that, and you'll be fine. Well, it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. You must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, they're saying is like, you know, Great, thanks for your opinion, but we answer to a higher court than you. You think you're all that in the religious court? We answer to a higher court that one day you're going to answer to too. And so we're choosing to, here's in essence what they're saying here. We're choosing today to fear God more than fear man. Trusting that God is going to let this work out however he sees fit. Now, obviously, we know because Acts 7 is coming. Stephen, remember him? He didn't make it quite so well as these guys. So obviously, we know it doesn't always work out in like the perfect way we think, but it always works out in the perfect way God wants it to work out. And either way, either way, it's going to be a win for believers because they'll be in the presence of the Lord. And so here's the choice that Peter and John made as they came up with this big dilemma. How am I going to live in, the, in this culture? How am I going to live? How am I going to, am I going to stand for Jesus or am I going to shrink back? Here's the choice they, they, they came to. Here's the ultimate choice. Am I, going to, am I going to fear God or am I going to fear man? It's the same choice we make every day. Every single day we make this choice when we step out of our houses in the morning. Every single day we make this choice. Am I going to fear God today or am I going to fear man? Am I going to worry about what my classmates think of me? Am I going to worry about what my workmates think of me? Am I going to worry about what my neighbors think of me? Or am I going to trust God and fear God and believe that he is going to work out all things for my good according to his good purposes? Clearly we know what God wants us to do. He wants us to be like Peter and John and fear God over fearing man. Sadly, sadly, in our age of humanism, the fear of man is rampant, and, and I'm a product of this culture too, and I battle it every day, but the fear of man is rampant, and, and here's, here's why our church isn't as powerful, not our church, the church isn't as powerful as it used to be in Acts. We're like, why is it not as powerful today as it was in Acts? It is just as powerful today if we choose to humble ourselves and get on God's plan and fear God more than we fear man. Ed Welch says this. Here's what really happens when we fear man. Their opinions and their possible opinions and their attitudes or the withholding of their love ultimately become your master. 
They ultimately become your master. And we choose to fear man over fearing God and not standing and, and proclaiming the truth of Jesus. So we, as we choose to fear man over fearing God, what happens is, is Jesus really isn't the first love of our life. He's really not our master. Everybody else is. But if we choose to really fear God, fearing God means have a a reverence for God and an awe of God that consumes us. Jesus will be our master. His love will be what we desire. His opinion will be what we delight in. And his life will be what defines me. This is a life of audacious faith, a life where Jesus is truly our master. This is where the joy is. This is where the power of God comes alive in our lives. And opposition is not ultimately going to ruin us. If Jesus is our all-consuming delight and our all-consuming goal, opposition doesn't ruin us. It just gives us an opportunity to see all of God's promises he's given us in his word actually come to fruition in our lives. It allows us to see that God will always come through for his children. We can't escape his watchful eye. There's no schoolyard that God's not a part of that, that can have. God sees everything, and ultimately, God, nothing can grip us out of the grip of our Father, John 10 tells us. And all opposition does, it makes our faith come alive. And our faith have the power that we so long to see in our own hearts. This is such an important text, and I know at first glance you probably think this doesn't apply too much today, but it does. I believe that we live in a culture where it's getting harder and increasingly harder to truly be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I wouldn't be surprised if before long, before long, some of the things we saw happening to the early church are happening here. You see how our government is going. It's it's already anti-God. I'm not sure how much more anti-God it can go, but it's getting further away from God. So God tells us to warn us. And it's, it's here for sure, but it's coming in greater ways. Are you going to stand for Jesus with audacious faith? Or are you going to shrink back? It's a scary thought, hey? Scary thought. I often wonder to myself if real persecution came and real opposition came like this, where there's threats and there's, like, like where would the church be? I'd, I'd be willing to guess we'd be half the size of church we are now. I'd be willing to guess that most churches would be half the size of churches they are now as, as really the, the people that are for God stand up and the people that are, really want God for them run away. How do you know if you're really for God or you just want God to be for you? Well, when persecution comes, you know. Am I really for God? Or is he like my little my little supernatural friend that I thought was just going to make my life easy and comfortable. And so now if there's ever a time to take note of this and stand up in the church for messages like this, it's today. It's today, and I am praying that our church would be a church that is, is filled with lions. I'm praying that my own heart would be a, a, a lion's heart for God, that we'd be filled with lions, that when Jesus comes back, he would find us. He would find us not running away, not cowering under a corner, but be standing faithful, delighted for his return. That's the way to get the fullness out of life. That's the way to see the fullness of God alive in you and through you as long as you are living and breathing here on earth. To live with an audacious faith for Jesus Christ. That's the only kind of faith there is in the Bible. This whole idea of I have a faith, but you can't tell, and no one knows, that's not a biblical faith. An audacious faith is one that stands up and stands out for Jesus, trusting, trusting that he will give you all that you need to stand firm in the gospel, and he will work all things out in the end according to his purposes. My prayer is that as we study the book of Acts, we become more and more like the Acts church. We see more of God's activity in us and through us that there would be no doubt whose side we stand on when it comes to eternal things. Let me pray. God, our prayer is simple. As we study Acts 4, would you make us bold like the apostles? Would you give us, God, an audacious faith? God, I'm sure there's even some in this place today 
that they know the reality of you, they, they know they want to follow you, but because they've been so scared their whole lives, they've never truly made an authentic decision for Jesus Christ. They've never repented of their sins and decided that today I will wholeheartedly follow Jesus and give you my life. God, I pray today there's someone like that in this room. God, would you breathe faith into their lives right now? Would you allow them to actually step out and be a follower of Jesus Christ starting today? God, I pray for those in this place that are... Uh, living this out and they're facing some real hard things in their family, they're facing some real hard things at work, not, not because of anything but because they profess to be followers of Jesus. God, would you give them grace today? Would you help them know the fullness of, of your Holy Spirit's power in them? Would you strengthen them, God, not to, not to doubt and not to be disappointed but God, to rise up and have faith in you, their living God? Would you give them courage today, God, to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not watered down, not something different that people want to hear, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for those who are believers and they know they're a believer, but God, they're just so scared. They're just so scared to stand up for you at school. They're so scared to stand up for you at work. They're so scared for you to stand up in their neighborhoods. God, I pray that this day, this week, that they would know the resolve to love and honor you in every aspect of their lives every day. They wouldn't be ashamed to, to bow before their meal and say grace in public. They wouldn't be ashamed, Lord, to mention where they head out every Sunday morning. They wouldn't be ashamed, Lord, to talk about the hope they have in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you stir up audacious faith in our people today? And for others, Lord, who are just knowing this and living this and in a place right now where it is, it is a good place and there may be an easier time. God, would you just keep building their resolve to live their lives for you and you alone? Would you build us all, Lord, the burden for the lost and a burden for those that don't have any hope in Jesus Christ, a burden for those who are building their lives on a foundation that is crumbling and it's not there and that will not stand into eternity. God, help us be people who don't just do a comfortable Christianity, but God, a people who live audaciously for you every single day, making the most of these few short hours we have here on earth. Help us in these things, God. We're too weak. We know all the right answers, but we can't muster the courage in our spirits. Help us, God. Give us faith. Give us courage. Give us your power. Give us your heart, God. Give us your son to truly live and reign in us. For you alone, in Jesus' name, amen.